welcome everyone to part three of our Nolan Countdown, the latest miniseries from Some Like It Scott. This week we'll be digging into Chris Nolan's third outing and his only film to date that he does not have a story or writing credit on, that is Insomnia. Before we get to that, however, with me today, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey, and our Countdown series guest, Jay Habib. Guys, how are you doing today? Well, we're making it, uh, or at least I'll speak for myself and say I'm making it. We're both here. Um, That's all I'll say about Jay. But um, yeah, we don't know. Again, we don't know when this episode is going to go out. Um, But when we are recording this episode, it is uh, in the middle of the coronavirus epidemic, which I said this, I think, on our last Some Like It Scott episode. But hopefully when you hear this episode, that will just be a thing of the past. And you can be like, oh, I remember when the coronavirus epidemic was a thing. That was a wild four or five weeks, and then everything was totally okay after that. Hopefully hopefully that's what you're going to be saying when you listen to this, whenever you listen to this, because um, who knows if 10 is is probably going to get delayed now, which means this series is probably going to get delayed as well. But uh, that's a a roundabout way of saying, Scott, that I'm doing okay, at least as okay as, as one can be doing in these times. I made it through my first week of online classes, so happy about that. Yeah. Jay, how are you? Uh, you know, to echo Scott Harvey, I, I really hope, uh, you know, we can look back on this time and laugh, right? And Scott, I hope you're right that, you know, we were, you know, quote unquote, in the middle of this, uh, although it feels like, you know, it might just be beginning. Uh, we'll see. If nothing else, this is a great time to watch these Nolan films and continue to talk about them. So just trying to look on the bright side. Yeah, people have been asking me for, understandably so, at least movie recommendations recently, given all the, the downtime people have. And... I found myself recommending some Nolan movies, one, because they're good and we've been watching them recently, but two, because they're also good and I've been watching them recently. And it really is, I mean, thinking about these movies and thinking about my mom, for example, is asking me like, oh, what movie should I watch? And I ultimately settled on some PTA movie uh, to recommend her. But I was like, I should tell her to watch Inception because, or Batman, or any of the Batman movies, which I think they're all on Netflix at the end of the month. Um, so it's a good time, this month being March. And because as Scott told me that the saying we're in the middle of the coronavirus it can mean very different things. Uh, a few months now, a, a yeah. middle of the coronavirus could be a few months from now, but uh, hopefully not. Hopefully a few months from now is when you're listening to this and uh, you don't have to really be worried. It, I'm not sure we'll ever laugh about it, as I think today the U.S. ticked over uh, the most confirmed coronavirus cases, uh, which mm-hmm. is disturbing considering how how far ahead China was for such a long time. And also I believe, you know, how many more people they have relative to the U S like yeah. 10 times as many people. I, I mean, that's an exaggeration. Cause that'd be like 3.3 billion, but um, they have many more times the people of the U S and they clearly did a better job of containing it. And it seems like still some people aren't taking it seriously enough or saying things like, Oh, the U S will be back to normal by Easter, which is crazy, crazy talk uh, in my mind, even, even if uh, things were on the, uh, up and up, so to speak, I think by Easter to say that uh, everything will be back to normal by Easter when two weeks before that uh, we took over the most cases, uh, most confirmed cases is like, it's wild. It's wild to me, but we'll leave that there and move on to the reason we came to talk today, because hopefully when you're listening to this podcast, you'll be like, why are they talking about this event? That was a year ago. I don't know. Um, But as I already mentioned, today's topic of discussion is 2002's Insomnia directed, of course, by Christopher Nolan, with a story written by Hilary Seitz based on a Norwegian film of the same name from five years prior. Insomnia stars Al Pacino as LAPD detective Will Dormer, who, with his partner Hap Eckert, played by Martin Donovan, is sent out on a loan to a small fishing town uh, in Nightmute, Alaska, after the body of a murdered 17-year-old girl is discovered. Things quickly become complicated as we learn of a looming internal affairs investigation into one of the detective pair's previous cases that is increasing tension between the two, especially after Eckert informs Dormer that he's planning to cut a deal and testify when they return to Los Angeles. The next day, after a ploy lures lures the murderer to return to the scene of the crime, Dormer, Eckert, and several local members of the police force chase the murderer to a foggy beach where Dormer mistakenly shoots Eckert as the murderer escapes. Out of fear of the potential implications of this, Dormer chooses to cover up his role in Eckhart's death, attempting to blame, uh, attempting to place blame on the yet to be found murderer. With a primary supporting cast of Robin Williams as that murderer 
and Hilary Swank as a young local detective who looks up to Dormer, the rest of Insomnia tells a story of two potentially competing interests for Pacino's detective, catch the killer and cover up his role in his partner's death. The hook of the, this mystery thriller, Dormer has to do all of this with minimal to no sleep thanks to the combination of his guilt over his partner's death and the perpetual daylight of night mute during the summer months. Before we get into our impressions of this most recent rewatch of Insomnia, let's start with what memories we had of this film and what our expectations were going into watching Insomnia. Again, Jay, let's start with you. What did you remember about this film coming into it? You know, Scott, it had been, uh, the, I think, the longest I'd gone since watching rewatching a Nolan movie. I think I last saw this maybe four years ago. Um, and I definitely remember just it kind of, uh, when I say stringing me along, I mean, you know, like kind of keeping me on the edge of my seat. I just remember like, you know, trying to, this is, you know, I think the first time I was, uh, you know, diving into Nolan after I'd, you know, seen the other movies and realized how much I liked his work. Um, you know, just like waiting for the big twist. And I remember, you know, kind of just sitting again like on the edge of my seat and, you know, feeling gripped by what was going on. And I remember like, you know, as, you know, the days pass uh, in the story and, you know, things, you know, become more and more perplexing to not get into spoilers yet. Right. Um, yeah. I just remember, you know, like being gripped and, you know, kind of feeling myself like going a little bit crazy watching things, you know, get more and more out of control. Scott, what about you? Yeah. So I saw this movie for the first time, like years <laughs> ago, probably um, kind of like with Jay, it was, Kind of when I when I after I had an idea of who Christopher Nolan was as a filmmaker, and I think particularly probably after I watched Memento and was you know as we talked about last week, I was really kind of blown away by that movie. I kind of wanted just to see everything that he had done. Uh, but then I actually watched this movie last year. My my former roommate um, was wanting to watch it because I don't think he had ever watched it, and so he just said one night, "Hey, do you want to watch Insomnia?" And I was just like, "Oh yeah, that's a movie," because. I think that is kind of how it's viewed in Nolan's filmography. It it happened like it, it came out in this time period between Memento and Batman Begins, right? Which are two of his most famous, most loved movies. Um, and Insomnia just doesn't have that same reputation. I think it's it's kind of uh, may, maybe the most forgotten film, taking following out of the equation, of course, um, the most forgotten film that Nolan has done. Um, and I think that's a shame for, for some reasons that we'll talk about. But yeah, so I'd seen this movie just a year ago and I kind of f knew, knew how I was going to feel about it uh, when I saw it again this time. Um, and yeah, I think, I think my, my reactions are mostly the same. Positive, I'm assuming? Yes. Yeah, so the expectations were positive. Yeah, for me, I think that what you're saying, Scott, around it being like the forgotten Nolan film, think of all the ones that I had seen and I'd seen seven of the 10 that you know, we're ultimately gonna go through here. You know, this is definitely the one that I had most forgotten about. Um, not that it is a soup. I mean, I think relative, actually I, I will say, I think relative to the other movies that I'd seen by Chris Nolan, uh, even ones that I may potentially end up liking less, I think this is maybe one of the most forgettable just because for Chris Nolan, in terms of the types of subject matter and the themes that he's tackling, this feels the most normal for the lack of a better word. Like it is a detective thriller. There is, of course, some nuance to the plot with it's not just these detectives hunting down this murderer. It's these detectives who also may or may not have this other thing going on and this tension. And and so it, it still elevates it above maybe your very rote um, detective mystery movie. But uh, I'm going to be honest, when I came back and revisited this, I, I tried to stay just off the memories of the first and only time that I saw this film, which was back freshman year of college. So about a little over six years ago. Now it's been a while since I've seen it. And I actually didn't really remember very much of the internal affairs subplot. So that, I mean, I quickly remembered everything once the movie started and I was reminded that that was a subplot, but I'd actually forgotten that element of the film. And I think like you said, Scott, it's not that um, the movie is forgotten because it isn't necessarily good or people don't you know regard it well. It's just that uh, maybe it doesn't have that something special to it with its themes, however you want to describe that. And we can we can dive into that in a second. But overall, I think I had middling expectations. I thought that maybe this would be, you know, at towards the bottom of the list by the end. And that still may be true that it's toward the bottom of the list by the end of, of this series. 
But I think that my expectations were exceeded even a little bit, uh, if for no other reason than just based purely off of uh, the performances. And I think that the interesting twist that this film, which I can't really say Chris Nolan is responsible for because it is based off a Norwegian film uh, with pretty much similar uh, plot beats, but uh, the the interesting nature of some of the subplots of this film and the relationship between Robin Williams's character and Al Pacino's character and, and the interesting dynamic that the two of them have, I think that's what really elevates this film above maybe other and more more or less straightforward uh, detective mysteries. But with on that note, I think to transition nicely into what were your general impressions of this film this time, Jay, we'll go to you again. Sure. Um, it, it was a good movie. Uh, I, I'm not going to heap praise on this, uh, you know, kind of like I did uh, with Memento last week. Um, and, and, you know, to, to kind of echo some of the things you said about how this kind of is the forgettable Nolan movie. Um, you know, I, I think it, kind of is maybe i mean i don't know just because maybe it isn't as mind-bending or not as you know thrilling or you know to even use what you said you know it is kind of the normal one um i still had like a you know a good time watching it i'm certainly not itching to rewatch it uh anytime soon but like I, I thought it was a good movie yeah scott what about you yeah i mean all, all along i think in both both episodes we've talked about how nolan as a filmmaker he sort of has these two phases of you know his his very original sort of puzzle box movies and then his straightforward you know m mainstream entertainment um and what makes him such a great director i think is the way that he can do both of those things to great effect um and this is really as both of you have alluded to this is really the first film of his that it, it dabbles more in that mainstream um, area than uh, than following in Memento, certainly. This, so, so this is really sort of his introduction to uh, that other side of himself as a filmmaker, which of course he he's really gonna tap into with the next movie that we're gonna get to, which is Batman Begins. Um, but yeah, I think this is a really solid watch. Um, I, I think it's definitely not on the level of Memento for sure, um, just because I think it does lack that originality. Um, but at the same time, I, I you know the story does keep you guessing, right? Um, I mean, obviously it comes from the Norwegian film, so get, get, you know to give however much credit to Christopher Nolan and, and the writers here as you want on that. But um, it, it the there are some elements in the story which make this different, I think, from the generic crime thriller, whether it's the internal affairs subplot, which I think uh, is interesting. Um, and of course, the whole Alaska setting as well. Um, th throw some wrinkles in there that, again, you would expect from Christopher Nolan. As much as we say he can make a mainstream film, um, again, what's so great about him as a mainstream filmmaker is that uh, he still puts his own stamp on the movies. And I think that um, that's definitely true about uh, this film. I, I think that... Um, there are, I, I do have a few quibbles with it, particularly, I think the ending is a little disappointing. Um, I, I think it, it, it gets a little too st standard in the end. Um, but I really like the performances. Uh, again, I think I think the movie keeps you guessing. I think it has a, a good uh, good cinematography by Wally Pfister, uh, his his longtime uh, cinematographer. And um, in general, I think it's it fits it fits well in Nolan's filmography. And it's a shame that it doesn't get more recognition because uh, I think it is a so solid sort of cat and mouse thriller um, with this disorienting element of uh, it being set in Alaska thrown in there. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's an enjoyable film for sure. Yeah, I mean, he's still not yet where he's technically producing under one of the, the big five at the time movie studios. He's, I think this is largely produced by Steven Soderbergh and George Clooney's like production company, Section 8 Films. So he's still not yet there in terms of like a big studio films he will get there of course with Batman Begins when he does go under uh at the time I think it was new a new line I'm not 100% sure but he, he's slowly working himself away there obviously following uh, for so many reasons I think it falls out of the equation in a lot of these uh films when you talk about Nolan you talk about his the not necessarily the trajectory of his career because I think it's really important for that but for you know making larger movies that you know actually have any sort of thing close to a legitimate budget and when you look at this I mean this is a 50 million dollar film. I mean, even 
of course, we talked I mean, we talked about how small the budget was for following. We talked about how relatively small the budget still is, still was for Memento, even though it was much bigger than the following. And Insomnia is that next step up and into the big leagues, even though he's not, again, not yet doing it for Warner Brothers, who did ultimately distribute the film. Uh, but he's really taking big swings. I think that even with something like this, something mainstream. I think that this is this is the movie that he had to make in order to prove that, hey, you know, I've got wild, I've got my wild ideas that obviously really resonate with people, are really popular both critically and commercially. Um, and now I'm gonna show I need to show studios that I can make a more mainstream film, even if I don't make another film as mainstream as this, uh, so to speak, that I can make it and I can I can deliver on that, even though I'm still, yeah, I'm the director of Memento, but still a relatively un, uh, less lesser known filmmaker at the time, not yet reaching that auteur status that he'll eventually gain, uh, you know, with his next four or five, oh, you know, over the course of his next four or five movies between Bat the Batman movies and then the Prestige and Inception. And so I think that you're absolutely right, Scott. I think it's a really interesting addition to his filmography. And the way that I've been really approaching this, this series is seeing how he's developed as a filmmaker. And I think that this, again, really just helps plot the trajectory of his filmmaking taking now these big movie stars for the first time, taking Al Pacino, Robin, I mean, Robin Williams may not a big movie star, but Al Pacino is certainly a big movie star. Hilary Swank, someone who hadn't yet erupted, I think, truly. She had an Oscar, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, she had an Oscar. I mean, of course, Million Dollar Baby hadn't come out yet, but, um, you know, she's a very, a, a very well-known actress and uh, attaching yourself to these producers. I know I'm maybe getting into some parts that aren't as interesting for our listeners, but attaching yourself to producers like Soderbergh and Clooney, uh, it was his mechanism for getting, you know, those actors and actresses probably. And so I think it's really awesome to see, again, how this fits in with the evolution from following to Memento to Insomnia. And again, you know, blasting off into the stratosphere when he starts doing Batman probably. But really interesting stuff. And again, really effective. Do I also have some quibbles to your point, Scott? Yeah, we'll, we'll get into those. I think he still hasn't quite figured out whether it's him or whether it's technology. I think there's certain filmmaking techniques that he hasn't necessarily mastered yet, which I think he will master in the next uh, over the next few films. And, and certainly now today, I think anyone would, would view him as one of the masters of, of that particular uh, filmmaking skill. But that being said, I think he does try to make the most of the material that he's given, especially since, like I said, you know, the first two films he wrote, you know, they were his concepts, his ideas. Well, technically, I guess Memento was his brother's idea, but uh, you know, he had a lot of input and say into all those things. And and since then, he still, again, like I said, hasn't hasn't had a movie where he doesn't he doesn't have either a story or a writing credit uh, on the film. So really, taking the first and only time that he does this, really taking uh, this adaptation of a of a you know another work, another piece of work, another film, no less, and really making it into his own. I haven't seen the Norwegian film, but I think that what he's able to do and, and certain set pieces that he's able to craft, I think, again, for the first time, really creating set pieces in his film. I think there's some really interesting set pieces, uh, really innovative, well done, to the point where you might even see them in like large scale action movies and think that they're pretty original and pretty cool. And considering Insomnia is not really that, and he hasn't gotten to that stage in his career yet, you can already see, again, you can see uh, the origins of, of what ultimately becomes, I think, trademarks of, of Chris Nolan films. You know, something like the, the foggy beach scene, something like, you know, the log chase scene later on in the film. I think these are all things that uh, you you kind of expect now of Chris Nolan, but to that point, I mean, Memento and Following, they're not really those types of movies. And to be fair, Insomnia really isn't either, but he starts to inject those into the film. I think they work really well on the whole. And to go along with, you know, like I was kind of alluding to earlier, and you already said, Scott, you know, really strong performances, I think, uh, for the most part from the cast. And so overall, I was really pleased how this film turned out and, and definitely exceeded my expectations uh, going into it. Yeah, and talking about the big names that are that are linked here in this movie, you do have to wonder, going back to what we talked about with following, right, the Batman symbol on the door, is he kind of angling for Batman all along? Is this his movie that he is making to say, look, I can get big name actors, I can make a mainstream movie, they don't all have to be, you know, these overly complicated sort of uh, puzzle boxes like he's shown with following in Memento. Um, I, I can do this. I can make a marketable crime drama uh, with big name actors. Uh, and and I, I just wonder if, if this movie was sort of a play for, for that Batman uh, franchise that of course he, he did get very soon after, or maybe even he, he may have even had it at this particular time, but even still. Yeah. I don't know if he quite had it yet, but I think it's certainly off proving, I mean, Warner, but with Warner brothers distributing this film and getting the distribution rights for it and distributing it and having it be successful. 
I, I mean, I, I think he probably, I mean, I don't know if they sought him out to do a Batman film, but when he came knocking on their door, at that point, you have a very, you know, presentable case to say, look at all these films I've done. I did my like indie mind bending movie uh, that was super successful, even though, you know, no one necessarily attached to it immediately after it was released at, um, at festivals. And then you have this main, again, mainstream film that, again, I, I don't know how profitable it ultimately was. It was on a, it was 115 million on a $46 million budget. It probably beat out its marketing budget there and, and made money. But the point is, I think that Chris Nolan's films are mark are, are your like, I don't know if it's technically a four quadrant film, uh, just because they are a little bit mature in some ways. I don't know if they're films for the whole family, but they're really nailing the sweet spot of these sort of, you know, PG 13 plus action films that, uh, you know, that, that someone like a Warner Brothers would, would want to take with their, with their, you know, DC franchises that they own. Awesome. So jumping into the cast, which we've talked only a little bit about so far, you have, like I mentioned, you have Al Pacino, who plays the kind of the lead detective here, Will Dormer. You have Hillary Swank playing this local detective, Ellie Burr. You have Robin Williams playing the murderer, whose name is Walter Finch. And, uh, you know, a few other supporting characters throughout. There's Maura Tierney, who plays uh, Hotel. I don't even know what you even call her. She works at the hotel that he's staying at. And uh, Martin Donovan, who's featured very prominently in the Tenet trailers uh, so far. So he has at least some sort of supporting role in the film coming out uh, in July. But in this one, he plays the uh, partner detective. Uh, is it is it Heb Eckhart? Hap. Hap. Hap Eckhart. There it is. Yeah. So, guys, uh, Jay, we'll start with you first. What did you think of the cast in this film? Do you think they all performed well in it? And was there one that particularly stood out for you? I, I think they did. I think, you know, from the, the big names who, you know, kind of carried the whole thing to, you know, the... The uh, what do I call them? The, just the you know the supporting cast who uh, played the local detectives and cops and whatnot. Uh, I, I thought they all did like a fine job. You know, even the way I was kind of just you know in my mind I was almost like brushing off the local detectives with the exception of Hillary Swank, and I, I, I think that's almost you know the way you would respond. Uh, you know, when you know you have two like LAPD cops and you know this uh, m you know murderer in Robin Williams's character that you know, you have to keep you engaged. And I, I actually, you know, I want to give my one shout out to Robin Williams. Uh, I'm not super, super well versed in his filmography, but, you know, coming from, you know, having Aladdin. seen him in like, it was well, Aladdin, obviously, but then, you know, I've uh, Goodwill Hunting and Dead Poet Society, you know, seeing him in this role, it was, it was like, it was a mind, that was, that was my mind bend from this Christopher Nolan movie. It was, I thought he, you know, played the role so well, like super believably, uh, and it, it, I almost had a hard time, you know, seeing that, wow, like this is the same guy. Uh, that was at least, you know, my experience. I, I thought he was great. No, I, I think that that's probably a lot of people's reaction. And, and I mean, not that other people maybe hadn't done it before now, but the whole conversation that people often have of like comedians, best roles being villains. I think a lot of that might, you know, stem or at least be supported by this particular role of, of Robin Williams and talking about comedians needing to get to dark places to play these sort of dark roles. Uh, Scott, do you agree with Jay or do you see it a little bit differently? No, I totally agree. I think the cast is is all excellent here. And talking about Robin Williams first, since we're on that subject, I think that there are some really subtle notes to his performance, which I appreciate because when he made this movie, he was either coming right off of one hour photo or was about to do one hour photo where he plays a very outwardly creepy guy, right? Like the this guy that you look at him and you're like, well, yeah, that guy's a creep. Here, that's not necessarily the case. He's much more subdued, but there are these moments, right? Like the when he's talking to Pacino on the phone, he just, the, there's these little subtle notes of, he just can't wait to tell Pacino about um, how the crime that he committed and the fact that, you know, they, he had this relationship with uh, the victim and why he did what he did. Um, he's just, you get the sense he is this lonely guy. He's just waiting for someone to talk to and that Will Dormer provides that person to talk to. So there, there is that little note of like, okay, he is a little bit of a creep, but it, he doesn't overdo it, right? To, to the point where you're like, well, why hasn't this guy been arrested, you know, a decade ago for, for being creepy um but r regardless uh hey everyone up, who goes to night mute alaska is either everyone who lives there is either from there or they were trying to run from something and you yeah probably trying to run for something um but talking about the other cast members 
I also think Pacino gives a really nice subdued performance. I think that's the word I would use uh, for his, for his character as well. He has he this detective who is really just, he's, he's at his wits end, right? He is at the end of his career. Um, he is in the middle of this internal inf- affairs investigation. You just get the sense from the very beginning that he is at the end of his, at the end of his rope really. And that, even though he's not physically tired yet, he is sort of metaphorically tired of the world, of what he does, uh, and that probably the years and years of, you know, investigating brutal crimes like the one that he has has to investigate in this movie um, have have worn on him. Uh, and the only moments right where we really see him go full Pacino are these moments where he is basically play acting. There, there's this one scene where he is trying to intimidate the best friend of of the of the victim, um, and so you know he goes he goes full Pacino and takes her out to the dump and um, is yelling at her and stuff, and it's really really a classic Pacino scene. And then there's this other scene right where he's pretending to be angry so that he'll get thrown out of the police station and can go to the house and find the gun. Um, and so he, like the fire that that he probably had at one point in his career it's gone and it can all, he can only really channel that when he tries really hard to, or when he out of necessity, when he really needs to, to get what he wants. Um, but he doesn't have that same passion uh, that he once had for, for detecting. And that's contrasted really nicely, right? With the Hillary Swank character who absolutely does have that passion. She idolizes Dormer. She probably still expects to see this, um, this side of him. She, she expects them to be sort of kindred spirits and that's not really the case. But she is the younger version of, of him. Uh, I mean, you, you, you like to think after watching this movie, and it is her persistence, right, that, that keeps, uh, the, the, keeps spinning uh, Pacino into a tighter web uh, because e- even when everyone else is willing to dismiss the case and ready to, to you know, call it a day and have a beer, uh, she is still bothered by these pieces of evidence out there. Uh, and she's a good detective, and I think Swank plays the role really well. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think the two standouts are definitely Robin Williams and Hillary Swank. I think Al Pacino is is Al Pacino. I, I loved the high note that you talked about there with the scene at the dump. That was probably my favorite scene of his when he. I'm not always someone who loves Pacino going full Pacino, but I think it it was nice because there wasn't very much of it in that movie, and so then it stood out in a positive way when it did pop out. Because I think for the rest of the film you really think that this film can probably be paid by any aging actor. Right. Um, and that's not necessarily a, a hit against Pacino, not doing something special with this role. Cause I think he hits the high notes really well when he needs to, but I think otherwise this movie is set up for someone like a Robin Williams to be a scene stealer. And as for Hillary Swank, I think she's maybe even punching above the weight of her role for, for me, if I had to point to, you know, a certain subplot that worked the least well, it would actually be everything kind of going on uh, with her and the fact she wrote her thesis on this guy. And uh, like, she's, you know, trying to hunt down this report, like this really boring uh, report of this person's death, which is supposed to be really uh, a routine thing. And he like, because he wants her to leave him alone, he pushes her to double check and triple check everything one more time. So you just leave me alone. We don't have to, I don't like have to deal with you or interact with you. Um, I think that's part is maybe like the most convenient or in slash weakest part uh, of the film, because it seems like as soon as you hear Robin Williams's voice for the first time as the murderer, like that's all, that's all you care about. Like you just want more of that character because in some ways it's like super mesmeric and, and for these, you talk about being for like creepy reasons, right? You're, you're, I feel like you're really engaged and absorbed by this Walter Finch character and in some ways it's kind of like grim like the fact that you are you know i think what you're saying around he's just waiting for someone to talk to is spot on and i think that the relationship that he has with al pacino's detective dormer is very different uh than the way that of course that al pacino's detective dormer sees the relationship that he has with walter finch and i and i find that to be one of one of the best acted parts of the film and you, and you look at robin williams it's so evident that he views himself and uh will dormer as very kindred spirits and in similar positions and same people and it couldn't be anything but the opposite if you if you flip the coin and look at it from 
Detective Dormer's perspective, and I, and I think that that is the part that's uh, acted acted the best in this film. As for the supporting cast, I think that look like it, there's not really any major roles. I mean, you think Martin Donovan might have a major role, and then of course he he's mostly just gone from the film uh, after the first you know half hour or whatever whatever it is uh, his time on screen. Mara Tierney again, someone who you might expect to have a more major role, but really only has like two scenes uh, to uh, of note. Um, so it really feels like the weight of this film really lies on those three shoulders, and uh, they definitely uh, hold the film up uh, in, in any points where it needs extra support, which most of the time it doesn't, because Chris Nolan's already, you know, really honing his craft as a filmmaker. So, guys, uh, moving on here, I think that there's uh, obviously plenty to talk about with the plot, as any Nolan film, even though he didn't have any writing credits with this one, I had a pretty long intro to set up. Everything here, there's, of course, the actual mystery of, you know, finding and arresting and holding this murderer to account for the death of the 17-year-old girl. There is the internal affairs investigation that we've kind of been referencing and talking a little bit about so far. Uh, but then there's also this whole notion of, you know, insomnia setting into uh, Pacino's character, you know, losing his mind, becoming delirious a little bit, not having, you know, all of his wits about him. And, and of course, that playing in to everything that's going on. And I want to hit all three of those topics before we do ultimately talk about the ending. So Jay, I'll let you choose first where we go. Sure. Uh, we can start with the IA subplot. We've just been dancing around it a little bit and sure. I'll just jump. And uh, weirdly for me, that actually might've been the thing that I cared least about. Um, and of course, you know, it serves like, you know, a, a great importance and that, you know, it, is the reason that, you know, him shooting his, uh, Al Pacino shooting his partner, you know, was not going to get played off as an accident. And, you know, he might get like railroaded for it and, you know, all these other things. Um, but in my mind, I think in my mind, you know, even when the first time I watched this, I have to remember, you know, that I've seen this before, so I couldn't, I couldn't hammer this too much, but in my mind, like there, the story is never leaving Alaska, right? Like this investigation is just going to be something that was thrown out. And it's going to like, you know, nag at Pacino's character, but it's not actually something that, you know, is, is going to play out in the end. It's, it's ultimately, you know, just going to, you know, push him, you know, further and further into either the guilt or, you know, like uh, the insomnia, like, you know, however you want to frame that. Um, it wasn't really something that like I cared for. And again, to me, that also was one of the things that seemed so like, I mean, the scene where, you know, Hillary Swank, you know, accidentally knocks over the newspaper and has to go pick it up and sees the thing about the investigation. Like, to me, that was the, the super convenient thing. That was like, oh, like, why, you know, is it going to be this thing that, you know, kind of brings it all, like, you know, dooms it all? Like, I, I have to say, I did like the IA subplot. I think that, um, it, obviously, in all of these movies, Nolan has been influenced by Hitchcock. In this particular element, feels very Hitchcocky to me because it really, it's really, it, it makes this, nor we have this normal guy sort of at the center um, who finds himself wrapped up in this very complicated web um, and ha has to figure out how to get out of it. And, and part of every, a lot of Hitchcock movies is you sitting there wondering, how is this person going to get out of this uh, web that they have spun for themselves? And I think you, you feel the same here and that internal affairs subplot, I think, plays a huge role in that and obviously is the motivating factor for um, his actions. Because in a different world, he could have just owned up to the shooting, perhaps, and said, look, I did this. It was an accident. Look at my pedigree as a cop. Like, you know that I'm not this person. Uh, I, I wouldn't have done this um, unless uh, it was an accident. Um, and, and of course, there's the added element that Hap is going to be testifying against him, right? Um, and so that that is why he feels, I must cover this up. But in covering it up, right, he makes himself look even more guilty, even though, uh, you know, he, he's trying to, to, to save himself. And so there's, there's that sort of catch-22 at the heart of the movie, which I think feels very Hitchcockian, and I like that. And I also think that it, maybe this is also something that contributes to to Pacino's, to the to sort of the world weariness of this character, that maybe the old school detective tactics that you know he made his name off of are now getting him in trouble, right? And are, and are on the way out, and are the reason that he is the subject of this uh, internal affairs investigation. And maybe that's just another reason why he just seems like he's really done with being a detective, and he's again he's at the end of his rope. 
Yeah, I think I lie somewhere in the middle. I think I, I definitely hear the points that, that both of you are making. And I think both sides of it resonate. I mean, you, you talk about, uh, Jay, you're talking about how the, infern the internal affairs investiga investigation being not something that you don't like, but feels the most convenient in driving the plot. And I think that there's some truth to that, right? Like, you know, it, it is the whole impetus for the thing that spurs the movie forward. I mean, without it, you have this very typical murder investigation and, you know, thing, things are probably wrapped up relatively quickly as soon as he figures out that Walter Finch is, you know, someone worthy of investigation and, and checking out. And um, rather than this weird dance that the two of them do for, you know, about 45 minutes to an hour before things, you know, fully come to a head, uh, the movie's a, a lot different. And, you know, finding the newspaper and propelling that plot forward, I think, that, again, that is somewhat convenient. But I think it also frames a lot of the movie uh, in a really interesting way. And, and Scott, to your point, maybe having some sort of like, you know, conversation about the times changing and, and moving past you and the world weariness of Pacino's character. I think that's something that um, definitely adds to the nuance of, of the film and the nuance of the character beyond just, you know, what you can ostensibly basically just see on the screen in terms of the subplots that we're following here. At the same time, I think that, uh, for that to be fully as fleshed out as I think I might have wanted it to be and, and for it to land as effectively as I would want it to be, I, th I would want them to compare, or not necessarily compare, but really lean into that more with the the dynamic that Ellie and Will have uh, as you know the local detective and the seasoned LAPD detective. I think that they try to, I think, swing back around that at the very ending, but that feels more contrived and uh, doesn't, doesn't necessarily um, work as well as and and the plan doesn't land the plane necessarily as well as, as, as I might have hoped that it would. We, we'll get to the ending in a second, but I think that ties in there. As for one of the other things, you know, the other half of the film, I think the the murder mystery is interesting, right? This isn't, uh, you know, some serial killer who just really needs to uh, get his fix, and which is kind of how it starts out, kind of looking. You know, they get to Alaska, they say like, oh, you know, he was so methodical, he was so calm, cool, and collected. He knew exactly what we'd be looking for, and he removed that. And to have all of that kind of laying out, it, I think it really sets up this sort of serial killer narrative. And then again, that's very that feels very stereotypical and you know classic Nolan fashion. It doesn't go that direction; it goes a different direction. I think the direction that it does go, and the character that it does set up for Robin Williams to play in, in this um, Walter Finch uh, person, I think is much more interesting. Works really well for me, and the way that that, that subplot ultimately intersects and evolves with the internal affairs supply and, and the, the knot that Al Pacino's character twists himself into because of that, I think that's ultimately what, you know, is the highlight of the film in terms of, you know, leading to these scenes between the two of them. Cause I think this movie is at its best when, you know, these two people, these two actors and specifically Robin Williams is, is feeding off that dynamic. Yeah. I don't disagree about the point with, uh, with Pacino and, uh, and Ellie, I think they definitely could have, uh, made that point more clear about the generational divide, uh, but you know, by pitting these two characters at polar opposites better than perhaps they did. Yeah, Jay, what do you think about the the just kind of the more I shouldn't say straightforward because it's not, but the murder mystery element of of the plot. I mean, I thought it worked really well. Um, I did want to touch on the the dynamic between Ellie and Dormer, right? And earlier how you, you know, mentioned the whole, you know, him rather than signing off on her, like, you know, routine shooting investigation just kind of sends her off. I almost interpreted that as him kind of like, like almost shielding her from like making like essentially like, you know, writing a false report completely unknowingly, of course, but I don't know, like the way, you know, he was kind of looking at it and the camera kept panning to like her signature and then his, you know, blank spot. I don't know. To me, it almost felt like when he was saying, you know, like, you should double, triple check your work, I almost saw that as him, you know, almost trying to, like, send her off to catch him at some point. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe that guilt was starting to fester. Maybe I'm completely just making this up. Um, but, you know. I mean, the guilt is definitely festering, that's, that's for sure. <laughs> I mean, at that point, it's still pretty early, right? Um, I think he hasn't slept in one night, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but... Yeah, I don't know. To me, and of course, you know, I'll, I'll agree to your point that they didn't really play that out so well uh, through the rest of the movie until you know the, the contrived ending. But that is one thing I I kind of did appreciate about 
you know, in tr it seemingly trying to set that up, even though, you know, they didn't really pay it forward uh, was, you know, him again, in, in my mind, just being like, Hey, like, you know, you should like make sure that what is in here is correct. Um, you know, partially, you know, to look out for this young gunslinger who, you know, may well be the younger version of him, but also, you know, maybe because that guilt was starting to, you know, really eat away at him. Scott, what do you think? Do you see Jay's point here or are you more on my side? I think I think I see both sides. I don't know that I have too much more to add in this debate. I'm going to be the uh, the Pick neutral side, mediator. Coward. <laughs> I'm going to be the neutral mediator on this particular issue. I think you've raised you both raised good points. No, yeah, I, I think it's an interesting point. I I mean, I clearly hadn't thought of it like that. But again, maybe maybe there's some. I mean, maybe this is just some sort of like philosophical uh, point around. Sometimes we uh, subconsciously are you know holding ourselves accountable and and doing things that lead to our own destruction when uh we've done something bad maybe and i mean maybe that's just part of karma uh i don't know but i think no look, it's an interesting point i i think in the run of the movie i didn't see it that way but but clearly you did so i think you can see it both ways and i don't think that uh i don't think that one or the other changes too much about the film um ultimately which i mean that i don't that that might not be a good thing i don't know um but yeah i to me, it felt more dismissive because he didn't love the kind of cleanness and attentiveness of this particular local detective as someone who is, like you were saying, Scott, world-weary, et cetera, kind of over the whole shtick and just kind of wants to get back to L.A. and live his life or do his job, whatever that might entail. But I also see what you're saying, Jay. So I think it's an interesting point. So I think the the last thing to talk about here before we do get to the finale, which I know we've kind can of – made... Can I add one thing? Absolutely. Yeah. I do want to mention, I do want to talk about the murder mystery uh, really quickly. I want to say that I think that what's really interesting about what Nolan does here is that there, we have sort of two murder mysteries going on, right? Because we have who killed, and I can't I keep forgetting what her name was, but the, the victim of the murder Kay in Alaska, Connell. Kay Connell, right. Uh, who killed her. And we also have the mystery of who shot, um, Hap Eckhart, which obviously we know the answer to that, um, but the the police are trying to figure out what exactly happened there, and in particular the Ellie character. And with regards to who killed Kay, we find out sort of halfway through the movie that yeah, it was it was Robin Williams's character. So both of the mysteries are solved uh, more or less by halfway through the movie. But it speaks to Nolan's credit, right? Like that the tension is still there, and the tension comes from watching these two characters of Walter and and Will Dormer try to get their way out of the predicaments that they're in, right? Because even though Will, we, we'd like to think, or Will would like to think that he's a much different person from Walter, that he's a much better person than Walter is, they both find themselves in the same place, right? Of where the the door is, is closing on them. And if they don't you know, take action quickly, they may both get caught for what they've done. Uh, and so they have to sort of cut this deal. And so I think that Nolan does a great job of even where the traditional sort of like whodunit elements are not really there, he still keeps the tension mounting throughout. It's very knives out of him. Um, I think that there's not there's not one thing. There's actually two more things that I do want to talk about before we do talk about the finale. The first, I think, is is very intimately connected to some of the scenes that you're talking about here related to the murder mystery components. And that's kind of the set pieces of this film. I, I mentioned it sort of at the beginning, and this is the first of Nolan's film that it really feels like they have true like cinematic set pieces in them. I think one of them is the foggy beach that does ultimately kind of culminate with the death of, of Hap Eckhart. And the second is probably the, the chase scene after they first um, encounter each other in, I can't remember the name of the town, uh, it's some really weird name, but uh, the, the first time that Will Dormer and uh, Walter Finch, Robin Williams' character, uh, meet each other, they kind of chase through the, across these logs, which I think is a really good scene. And then to the extent that, you know, the last scene of the film, uh, the finale may, may also be a quote unquote set piece uh, but it seems like a little bit of a smaller scale than those first two that I was talking about. Jay, what did you think of these uh, set pieces, kind of the first forays that Chris Nolan makes into this type of scene? Do you think that uh, it's a bit rough around the edges? Do you think it's done well? What are your thoughts? I, you know, weirdly, I thought the fog chase scene, you know, I'll use your terminology, and it was a little rough around the edges. I don't know if maybe it just dragged on or got a little dull in the middle, uh, you know, after... I mean, I, I know it was kind of supposed to build suspense. I, maybe it just, you know, didn't work for me. 
Um, I did think the log chase scene was really, really cool. Um, you know, I, I was watching that and again, like, you know, remembering that this was kind of early in his filmography, you know, thinking like, wow, like, you know, this is like, it's really cool that he like put this together, um, you know, right down to when Pacino goes under uh, and, you know, stays under for a while. And like, you know, it, uh, it all of that like worked really well for me, but even, you know, some of like the, you know, simpler, you know, nuances, like, you know, the talk between uh, Walter Finch and Will Dormer on the ferry, um, you know, not the last time we're going to have a super tense scene on a ferry in a Nolan movie, but, um, you know, even that one, like, just worked really well. Yeah, it obviously wasn't a set piece, but I'm going to go ahead and give that uh, its own shout out anyway. Sure. Scott, you look like you're itching to say something. Oh, well, no, I was just thinking about how funny it is. And I, I really like the, the log chase sequence as well. But uh, how funny it is that right, this chase happens there. Pacino's chasing him and Robin Williams just like skips right across these logs. I mean, it's obviously a stunt double, but he skips right across these logs, gets to the other side and turns around. And that's really the first time you see that, oh, this is Robin Williams. And I'm just like, do we really think that Robin Williams could do what he just did there with skipping across the logs? And then Pacino gets out there and he's just like, you know, falling all over the place. But I think that that is a great sequence. Um, it's it's very creative, right? And you wonder, again, talking about the whole Batman thing, right? Do you wonder if he's angling for Batman and putting these sequences in there to say, hey, look what I can do with like action sequences. I can bring something, you know, somewhat fresh to, to Batman, which is, you know, has been played which you could argue at that point had been played out, right? There have been four films. The last two in particular were not well received at all, but he's saying, look, I can bring something new to, to Batman if you want me to. And I think the fog chase sequence works really well too. I, I, I didn't have too many issues with that. I think any maybe roughness in the filmmaking for me, I, I just felt like that was just adding to the disorientation, right? Because we're, we're supposed to, I don't think we're ever supposed to feel any suspense about whether Pacino purposefully shot Hap or not. I think it's very made very clear from the the scene that it was an accident, and I think the way that the scene is filmed uh, helps helps that point because it is disorienting, right? You do sort of get lost on who is who, where is everyone in this you know thick fog, uh, and so I, I think it really puts you in Pacino's shoes in that uh, segment. So it worked for me. Yeah, I think for me, I think both scenes, the concepts of them are something like I kind of mentioned at the beginning that wouldn't feel out of place in, you know, an action, fran like a franchise action film, like a Mission Impossible, like a 007, that they look like set pieces that you, like concepts for set pieces that you could see in them and be done really well. I just don't think that, you know, Chris Nolan has yet figured out how to shoot these types of scenes. I definitely hear what you're saying, Scott, around the fog scene being intentionally disorienting. But I mean, I swear these these scenes are edited to absolute hell, and I have no idea why. There's so many hard cuts in these scenes, and and I think I would have been able to excuse the fog scene if the exact same thing hadn't happened with the log scene later on. I, I would have been in your boat or been in your shoes here and said, "Hey, I think it was just to contribute to the disorienting feeling of of being in that fog." But even the log scene, which I think is maybe like the cool, like in terms of ideas, like probably the coolest scene. Uh, in the film is it, it's like it's so it's edited so much for me that it, it almost ruins the entire scene like it, it's not like for me it's just like nauseating how many cuts that there are it doesn't really feel like you can follow and I maybe even understand why because they are interweaving cuts of stunt doubles with you know the actual actors in the scene but I think that's something that you know again whether it's for that reason or for you know a technology reason whatever it might be I think these are things that that Nolan's going to figure out pretty quickly how to shoot but they were it was so rough in this in this movie for me to to see these scenes i think conceptually are really interesting and really cool be almost ruined by the way that they were shot the way that they were edited no i shouldn't say necessarily the way that they were shot but the way that they were edited together and cut together it just didn't work for me at all yeah so the last point here is again thinking about how this whole you know the title of the movie is insomnia this whole thing around the fact that he's not getting any sleep uh how he has you know that mixed in with the guilt that he's feeling, uh, I should say, not getting sleep from two causes, one being the guilt that he's feeling from the death of his partner, but also this uh, sort of, you know, 24 seven daylight that he's experiencing up in Alaska. For me, I, I'll go first here. I think that it's an interesting, again, an interesting concept and premise and hook to put onto a movie and 
makes for an interesting title on the whole. I don't actually know how much this hook actually adds to the overall film itself. I, I don't know, you know, how much we really gain from having this, you know, world weary Al Pacino also be delirious. I think it, it adds maybe to that weariness and that beleagueredness that you see in his character towards the end of the film, not having his what's about him making poor decisions. But sometimes I, I really wondered if this whole insomnia bit was even necessary. Jay, what did you think? I think I felt similarly for the first half of the film, maybe even the first two thirds. I think it, you know, does, uh, I mean, you know, because, because we see it, you know, played up more in, you know, like you said, some of the bad decisions we see him make, it perhaps, you know, feels a little bit more justified or that, you know, it adds more, but I'll definitely agree that in the first half to two thirds of the movie, um, you know, it, it kind of, it seemed like something that maybe would add more and then just didn't really. Like I remember on this rewatch, you know, the, the first time watching him trying to sleep and, you know, after, like while thinking about his partner and the seeing the light come in and in my head, I just heard this silly voice going, you know, oh, see, that's why they call it insomnia. But beyond that, I don't think it really did much until the end of the film. Scott, what did you think? Uh, it works for me. I think that um, kind of what you were talking about a little bit, Scott, that um, I, I like introducing the element of, yes, we have this cop who is, he's tired of his career. He's, he's you know, figuratively tired of, you know, the world perhaps that he finds himself in. And we're also going to introduce this element of literal physical tiredness, physical fatigue that he begins to experience because it is constantly daylight. And I also like the fact that um, because it is constantly daylight, there's this whole like idea that Pacino is really just chasing his shadow for the entire movie, right? Because he's he's constantly in the daylight. He can't get away from his shadow. And that's really what his journey in this movie is about, I think, is, is him trying to tap into that older self, um, just even though he finds himself in a world that maybe doesn't value the, that older detective very much, or that he just doesn't have the energy left to get back to that point. Uh, and so by, by making it daylight, right, there's this whole idea that he's constantly chasing a shadow. He can't get away from his shadow. And because of that, he is being physically worn down. He is becoming physically tired. He can't sleep. Um, and a as a result of that, um, he feels this fatigue that ultimately overcomes him in the end. So I liked that aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think for me, I can see the bits and pieces of it and how it does contribute to the overall, the overall maybe the char characterization of him. But it, when you're, the, it's the title of your movie, it feels like it's like a central piece of the story you're telling. And, and I guess I didn't get that um, as much. And I, I wasn't sure what my expectations were going in, but just having that, uh, I shouldn't say, I don't know what my memories were necessarily going in, but my expectation was that it was going to be a more central piece. And it, it didn't feel like that much of the overall message of the film would have been different if that element were completely removed. But that's, again, that that's maybe just me. All right, guys, the finale of the film, we've, we've briefly alluded to it and mentioned it already, but this finale is, of course, that Ellie needs to go uh, take, some statements or what, get the emails or something or letters that he letters yeah letters from Walter yeah not emails <laughs> Walter <laughs> Finch uh, at, at his lake house and it's set in real Al Pacino realizes that uh, you know he probably intends to kill her at this point to kind of close out uh, close the loop on that loose end and so you know chases or I guess races to this lake house that he discovers kind of where it is uh, and this sets up this kind of shootout. Uh, at this lake house between Ellie and Will and, of course, um, Walter Finch's character that leads to basically, you know, Walter and Will being each other's demise as they both, you know, shoot each other to make a, a bit of a longer scene short. They both end up shooting each other uh, point blank. Uh, Will survives at least long enough to have this final moment with Ellie where he encourages her to not be like him, essentially, not cover up. Uh, something that that he had done uh, just for the sake of image, his image not being tarnished or uh, some other, you know, higher justice being done by bad means or however you want to phrase it. Uh, Scott, you know, you you talked about this ending a little bit earlier already and, and how maybe it, it didn't quite uh, wrap the bow that you wanted on this film overall. So I'll let you expand on that thought first. 
Yeah, I think there's a couple of things about it. First of all, in sort of the preceding scene, I don't really understand why Pacino decides to confide in Maura Tierney's character, right? Because as you said earlier, she doesn't really have much of a role to play in this movie. She's just kind of there. They share a couple of interactions together at the hotel, but she's not a major factor in this movie at all. Um, and, and yet she comes to him in his room and um, he just decides to, to confess all to her. Um, and, and maybe if this was the Walter Finch character, right, and we got that sense that he was itching to tell someone, I would believe it a little bit more. But I, I just don't understand why Pacino chose this moment and this person to, uh, you know, to, to, to lay it all out there. And then had an absolute wit's end. That's yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe so. But the other thing I didn't like is just the the final confrontation, I think, because the other action scenes in the movie are more inventive and more creatively staged. I just felt like this was kind of a standard action climax. You know, they're punching each other. They're shooting. It just felt like kind of unsatisfying to a movie that I think had been bringing some creativity to its major set pieces that this was the way it was going to end was a little unsatisfying, like I said. Um, and I will say though, that I, I do like the fact that I think it, I do like the fact that Pacino's character dies in the end, because I think like that is him succumbing to the insomnia, right? He is going to sleep permanently because he, you know, every, it is, he is finally caught up to himself. He's finally tired, you know, tired out of chasing his shadow and all that's left for him to do is sleep with maybe the person there who's going to carry on his legacy and Ellie right there with him um, saying, look, I know you're innocent as, as he passes away. That's really all there is left for him to achieve, I think. Uh, and so I, I think that that aspect did work for me. I just wish it had come about in a better package. Yeah. Jay, what about you? What do you think of the ending of this film? I'll echo a lot of what Scott Harvey said uh, succinctly in that, yeah, I did find the end, the final confrontation to be, kind of boring um i have been thinking back to this moment right before uh you know there's the shootout uh begins even before he knocks out hillary swank's character uh before robin williams does that when he you know opens the drawer to the dress almost as if to like let her see it yeah um yeah to like you know justify the killing then right it's almost as if he's doing this for al pacino's character and i don't think that was something i'd necessarily picked up on the first time um my first time watching this you know however many years ago and, you know, I, I liked that. And then, you know, the shootout itself was kind of boring. In my mind, you know, there, there really was no other way to end it uh, other than, you know, Pacino dying. And I think, you know, Robin Williams' character also just kind of had to die. You know, the double shot was like a little tacky for my taste. But, um, you know, uh, to echo Scott Harvey again, you know, like the, the final, his final moments, you know, uh, you know, going to rest with someone who sees him as innocent and, you know, will carry on, like, I, I think was good. Um, you know, it, it almost weirdly felt like a tad anticlimactic, but like the whole thing, but. Yeah. Cause uh, then it just ends like yeah, after that, right? it's just like fade to black. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that, you know, I was talking earlier about it being contrived and I feel like for a movie that, you know, again, it's more mainstream, it's more kind of straight laced in terms of uh, its themes, et cetera. It, it felt like a very stereotypical ending having this action set piece. Even the conversation that the two of them have, I mean, it does deviate from the stereotype of, you know, he dies, he doesn't make it through. He, you know, the the good guy doesn't, good guy, because he obviously he did this this cover up of the death of his partner, uh, or at least his role in it. And, uh, you know, the good guy doesn't survive though. You know, he doesn't make it through. He isn't, the last shot isn't of him in the hospital recovering. It's him dying there. And so I think that that is one thing that's good. So I agree with you, Scott, they're liking it, that he does uh, kind of succumb, maybe for different reasons than you do, but I'll, I do like that he dies there for that reason. But even the conversation that the two of them are having, I mean, not that I have a problem with it, but it feels very stereotypical uh, for me. You know, it, it, when I saying contrived earlier, talking about, it's trying to wrap up this sort of dynamic and and relationship between these two characters that didn't feel fleshed out enough over the course of the film, or that it necessarily earned some sort of emotional payoff. I don't necessarily think it gets an emotional payoff at the end. I don't. I don't necessarily feel any emotion at the end of the film in that way. Uh, but it, it seems like it's trying to go for that. So again, I just found that the ending was, uh, you know, a, a little bit of a letdown. I think the most interesting part, Jay, is exactly what you're saying: is the fact that. I think it raises the question of whether Robin Williams intentionally set up a situation where he was going to, you know, have to kill Ellie now, right? But really he didn't have to if he could have avoided it. And I think it raises the question of could that not have been the exact same thing that happened between him and 
you know, the, the, the girl, is it Kay, Kay Connell? Kay Connell. Kay Connell. Yeah. Kay Connell is, you know, he has of course told this story I like on the ferry, you know, that, that scene that you were talking about earlier, Jay, uh, to detective Dormer, he's told the story of how it happened and how, you know, it wasn't intentional. It was really just this crime of passion in a way. And, uh, didn't really see it that way, but I, I think it really draws into question, you know, the trustworthiness of this character or someone, not that you didn't think this character, not that you thought that this character was trustworthy to begin with, but I think again, it, it raises a point, uh, that this character, you know, you can't really trust what he's going to say. And maybe he's not a serial killer, uh, in the way that we, we originally laid out at the beginning of the film, but maybe he was destined to become that something to maybe alluding to something Scott was saying towards the beginning of this guy is creepy. You, you kind of wonder how, he hadn't been arrested for being creepy 10 years before. I think that that is again, tying back to, to that point and leading that in uh, at the end of the film again, but it's not fully fleshed out and maybe it doesn't need to be either. I don't know, but that was just my final thoughts as well. All right. I think that that should do it. So we can enter our wrap up phase. Uh, Jay, what was your favorite scene from insomnia? I think I will go back to the fairy scene, um, you know, in, you know, hearing Robin Williams, you know, talk about his motivations and the night of the murder and all that, you know, it, it, it really got to me. You know, I, I hadn't really seen uh, him act in this kind of role. I thought he did it really convincingly and, uh, you know, right down to the very end where you know, he steps off the ferry and, you know, just shows the tape recorder and just that smile he had on his face. Like, you know, it was so creepy, but like, you know, it, you know, so well done, of course, you know, I, I want to give Robin Williams uh, credit where credit is due there. Yeah. Scott, what about you? Yeah, I, I'm going to go with the scene that I talked about earlier with uh, Pacino in the interrogation room with uh, with Robin Williams. I think it's a great scene where he uh, has to come up with a way because he knows, again, the clock is ticking. He has to be able to beat the police to to Finch's house. Um, and so he because he realizes that Finch has moved the gun or to, to, to the boyfriend's house, rather, because he realized that Finch has moved the gun and all of this stuff. Um, and so he has to come up with a way to do that. And his way to do that is to go full Pacino and get himself, you know, thrown out and say, have the other cop be like, take a walk, take a walk. And him to be like, you know, leave and then and then go to the house. Um, I, I think that that was a, a great it was great to see Pacino, you know, sort of flip that switch in that scene. Yeah, for me, I think it was the fog scene, not from the kind of the beginning of it, at least when they had the stakeout and you have this local detective completely mess up the megaphone or whatever and leads to this chase. And it's that moment when you first get to the fog and you realize the scene you're about to walk into, you're like, oh boy, like this is really cool. I didn't necessarily expect a scene like this uh, in in the movie. And so I think that that is a, a real standout moment for, for me. And one other moment that I do want to mention as we kind of close, close out the podcast here. It, referencing a movie that came out last year on Netflix, The Irishman, and Al Pacino has his moment to, you know, talk on the phone with the wife of his partner uh, who he's murdered. Uh, no, I shouldn't say murdered, that he's killed, uh, you know, even if it is accidental, and having to, uh, the the emotions in that scene, I couldn't help but wonder if Robert De Niro had uh, watched Insomnia to prepare for telling Al Pacino's wife in, in, uh, in um, The Irishman that, you know, he had killed him, although in that case, a little bit more intentional. Yeah, I think De Niro gave it a little bit more uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> with his performance for me. I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. All right, guys, let's put a score on Insomnia. Jay, what score between 7 and 10 are you going to give this movie? <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. Um, I'll give this movie an 8.0. Solid film. Uh, not itching to rewatch it, but glad, glad I saw it this time around. Absolutely. All right, Scott, what about you? For once, Jay and I are in complete agreement. This movie is a straight-up 8.0. I'm giving it the same score. How about that? Yeah. Actually, I, didn't we both give a 10 last time? So. No, I don't No, know. Jay didn't I, give it. I, I went low. Yeah, I gave yeah it you 9. gave a 9.5 to one of your favorite favorite movies. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm, I'm going to give it – I'm a little bit lower. I'm going to give it a 7.2, but it is, it's a really good film. Uh, I'd recommend it, and like I said – definitely came out higher than than my memories and expectations for it. Um, but again, we'll see where it shakes out ultimately uh, by the end of the 10 movies here in our series. And on that note, uh, that will do it for part three of the Nolan Countdown. Please follow our podcast on Twitter at, at @mediaplugpods. Subscribe to our newsletter as well. I'll include the link uh, in the episode notes for that. And uh, don't forget to check out our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. 
Our Patreon has a bunch of different reward tiers for you to check out, and you can receive different rewards. Uh, and at, even at the $1 level, you can get episodes early. So if you can uh, support our podcast at the $1, even at the $1 level, we'd really appreciate that. That's www.patreon.com slash media plug pods. If you can't uh, support us on our Patreon, that's totally okay too. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify or wherever else you listen to your podcasts, where we'd love it if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, shared, uh, all that stuff. And I have said enough. We really appreciate all of you for listening to part three of our Nolan Countdown miniseries. Don't forget to check out all the other podcasts in the Some Like It's Got feed, including our latest episode of Some Like It's Got, as well as Champ's Lunch. We'll be back next week with part four of the Nolan Countdown, where the three of us will be revisiting the first film in Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, Batman Begins. Until then, for Scott Harvey and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.